Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. Some of you may know that Florence and I live on a riverbank, which is an, can be an interesting place to live. Uh, one day last summer, I was down by the, the river. I go there sometimes for alone time. And uh, the water was high, uh, not as high as it has been this weekend with all the rain we've gotten, but, but it was flowing pretty good. And so I stood there by the, by the edge of the bank, I, uh, by the water, I, I saw this black, uh, large carpenter ant crawling on some twigs there. And he was just kind of minding his own business. But the kid in me quickly took over and without a thought I flicked him into the water. <laughs> and then I just stood there and watched. So as you might expect, he immediately starts swimming for his life like an Olympian swimmer. And and uh, within a very short period of time, he managed to get a hold of a, a twig. And suddenly I'm standing there and I find myself rooting for this ant. I start to identify with this ant. You know, he's in there and he's battling the elements. Um, and I'm thinking, wow, you go, guy. Because, <laughs> I mean, he's, a, he's an ant in a river. And uh, battling the wind and the waves and, and uh, trying to get somehow desperately get back to shore. And sure enough, as I'm, I'm watching him, he's working feverishly away there. And, and then the twig fetches up on a branch that's sticking out from the shore. And that amazing little creature, and they are an amazing specimen... That amazing little guy manages to scramble up onto that branch and he's making a beeline for shore. And I'm inside, like I'm cheering, you know, just inside, right? Because you never know who might be standing off watching you somewhere. And you, you don't want people to think that you're complete, you've completely lost it. But inside, I'm having a bit of a party. I'm going, you go, guy. This is amazing. And all of a sudden, bam, the hand's gone. Kind of startled me. Because... What neither I nor the ant saw was a big old frog with a tongue four times as long as he, as he was hiding under some bushes down by the edge of the shore. And uh, that was the end of Mr. Ant. It was so unexpected it, it kind of startled me. Not that I'm... Uh, not that I'm afraid of frogs or anything, but it was just, it was so unexpected. And so as I stood there in shock and horror, <laughs> this thought came into my head. And the thought was this, that so often in life, the danger we see is not the great danger. That the great dangers in life are, are often the unseen things. The things that are plain and the things that are right in front of us, the things that fixate and obsess us, 
the things that we tend to worry about and the things that we're very careful to steer away from are often not the great danger. So what is the great danger? That's kind of what we're going to be thinking about today as we get into the book of Colossians, the letter to the Colossians. And, and so let me just share just a, a few background thoughts with you about the book of Colossians before we jump in. And there's different ways we categorize books of the Bible. The most obvious way is Old Testament and New Testament, right? Everybody knows that. But even in the New Testament, we have the four Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. But then you, you probably know that we even group, subdivide those. And we talk about uh, the synoptic Gospels. The synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke and because they cover the same basic material, uh, historical material, whereas the book of John is written a little bit differently. Wonderfully different, but, but different. So we talk about the synoptic Gospels. And then, of course, in the New Testament letters, you have the uh, letters of Paul, we call the Pauline epistles. We have the other letters, we call the general epistles. But then we break that down as well. Some of you may uh, have heard different times, myself or others, refer to the pastoral epistles. The pastoral epistles are First and Second Timothy and Titus, and they're called the pastoral epistles because Paul uh, wrote those letters to his young pastoral protégés, instructing them how to structure and lead a church. And so we call them the pastoral epistles. There is also a group of four letters in the New Testament that we refer to as the prison epistles. And as you might suspect, we call them that because they were written by Paul from prison. Actually, it, it wasn't as much, um, it was house arrest in Rome. And uh, so before you start thinking house arrest 2018, <laughs> okay, because when we say house arrest, we say, oh, that's not so bad. Nah, it wasn't as bad as, as, as prison, but it was definitely captivity. Paul was in chains. He was writing in chains. And, and you, you, if you want to, to, to uh, understand the historical context, two weeks ago when Curtis preached about um, Paul's uh, voyage and, and uh, the ship capsizing, the shipwreck, and they landed on the island of Malta. If you were here a couple weeks ago when Curtis shared about that, uh, in the latter chapters of Acts. Well, if you go to the very end of the uh, book of Acts, to the very last chapter of Acts, Paul did arrive uh, in Rome, and, uh, <laughs> excuse me, and the very uh, last two verses in Rome, uh, Acts, sorry, uh, chapter 28, Paul's in Rome, and it says he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. That's how the book of Acts uh, closes. So, and we know from history that Paul spent two years there under house arrest. So he, he was in chains, but he was allowed to have people come and go. And uh, it was during those two years that Paul wrote four letters that we have. Now, he may have written others, many others, and we suspect he did. But we have uh, those, those um, four letters. And those are the letters of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Interesting, uh, in uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 22, just... Uh, Flash that up there. 
Uh, Don, thank you. That's just Philippians 4.22. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Isn't that interesting? Paul's in Rome, and he's doing his thing. What did it say there in the, in the, in the Acts? It says that he, he was proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ and, and uh, with all boldness and without hindrance. And... Uh, Paul, uh, we're not going to give Paul credit for those who were believers in Caesar's household because we, we understand that, that the gospel had already gone to Rome by this time and there were believers there. But regardless of the case, it's obvious from the passage that Paul had ministry with these believers who were part of the household of the emperor of Rome. That's pretty, pretty, pretty big stuff, right? I think that's pretty cool. It also makes for a very interesting category if you think of it. Prison epistles. Letters written from prison. Last week, uh, when uh, Sean was uh, dismissing the kids, he talked about Richard Wurmbrand, who uh, wrote the book Tortured for Christ, who spent how many years, Sean? Fourteen? It was a lot of years. A lot of years in prison, in a Romanian prison, being tortured for his faith. And uh, I I don't have uh, his book Tortured for Christ, but I do have his book uh, Letters from Solitary. And it's a very fascinating thing uh, you know, um, people who have lived through and endured unimaginable hardship and suffering, especially when they testify how Christ sustains them through that, I, I, I don't know about you, but I find that very interesting. That's, um, you know, it, when those people speak, uh, I tend to listen. It's like they, p- people who've gone through that type of hardship, uh, when they speak, they have something to say. Something that the rest of us can only wonder about, right? We like to wonder, but we like to say, you know, what would, it, what would I do if? How would I respond if? And the truth is, we don't really know. We can't, none of us can say, remember Peter? He said, Lord, I'll never deny you. And Peter said, <laughs> Jesus said, you, you know, you're not, you're not even going to make it through the night, Peter. <clears throat> you know? Before tomorrow morning, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. So we can't, we can't ever say for certainty what we will or what we will not do in the future uh, because we don't even know the depths of our own hearts the way God does. Uh, we can say what we would want to do and what we hope we would do, but, not, but, but we don't know. And so when I hear or read from people's stories from these kind of contexts, uh, it really... Uh, you know, causes me to sit up and pay attention. Now, what about Paul's prison letters? The prison, the prison epistles. Uh, well, let, let, me, let me ask you a question. What would you write about? What would you be writing? What would I be writing? Probably something like, get me out of here. <laughs> I mean, probably something like that. <laughs> Well, a couple of fascinating things about Paul's letters from prison. One thing is that these four letters, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, include some of the most amazing, uplifting, and brightest passages in all of Scripture. That's interesting. Remember last week when Doug was preaching on the subject of joy from Philippians chapter 1? Because joy... It's a major theme of the book of Philippians, which is one of the prison letters that Paul wrote from prison. You know, we might not really expect that. 
to be the case. But it is the case, and it's fascinating. Uh, so that's one thing, but here's another thing as well. If you read through those four letters, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, you will see that in all four of those letters, Paul's concern is not for himself, but for others, specifically those who are not in prison. Now that's quite remarkable when you think about it. He demonstrates little concern for his own dire circumstances, but an amazingly genuine concern for the circumstances of others who aren't in his circumstance. Uh, last week again, Philippians, take a look, Philippians 1, 22, uh, 23 and 24, I am hard-pressed between the two. He's talking about whether he's, whether he's going to end up dying in prison or whether he's going to be re released. And he's saying, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to part, depart and be with Christ, for that would be far better, of course, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. For me to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. On your account, what are you saying, Paul? Paul's saying he was more concerned about the Philippians than he was about his own life in prison and the prospect of his own death. That's a substantial statement, I think. You know, prison would be one of those things, wouldn't it? Prison would be one of those things that we would tend to want to stay clear of. It'd be one of those obvious kind of things. You know, if you're having like a, a list of expectation for your children growing up, you know, what might be on the, the bottom, the bottom rung might be, can you please stay out of jail? <laughs> Prison is one of those things. And, um, <clears throat> you know, we might, be, you know, you read uh, the book of Acts and you read the account and you might be thinking, you know, Paul, no, no, Paul's in big trouble now. This isn't, this isn't good. And uh, Paul didn't look at the situation that way at all. So today we're in Colossians. Uh, it's even more striking in some ways than his letter to the Philippians because as we know from Acts 16, the story of the Philippian jailer, uh, Paul had spent time in Philippi and he knew these people intimately. But Paul had never been to Colossae and had never laid an eye on any of these people. Never met them. You know, it's one thing to care, genuinely care about people you know, that you've spent time with, that you've uh, wept with and laughed with and, 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 and lived with. But Paul had never met these people. We, we, we know that because he, he comes right out and he says it in Colossians 2 verse 1. If you just take a, a glance there. Uh, he says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those of Laodicea for, and for all who have not seen me face to face. There's no record of Paul ever going to Colossae. And yet here he is expressing great concern for them. Let's jump into uh, Colossians chapter 1 and uh, work our way through some of the text here if we can. Um, Colossians 1, <laughs> let's uh, just jump over the greeting, although, yeah, let's do that. Start in verse 3. Uh, verses 3 through 7. The, the, the greeting is a classic Paul type of greeting, and you can read it there in the time that it's taking me to tell you that we're not going to read it. So, anyways, verse 3. 
We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you, as indeed, or hope laid up for you in heaven, sorry. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world is bearing fruit and increasing as it does also among you since the day you heard it and understand the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, uh, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. We learn from these verses here that it was Epaphras who shared the gospel with the folks at Colossae, and that Epaphras was a, a beloved fellow servant of Paul's. So Paul's writing to this, this group of believers and whom he has never met, but he has heard a lot about them. Uh, and he feels a sense of connection through this um, evangelist, church planter. We're not exactly sure. His name was Epaphras. Paul mentions him here as a beloved fellow servant. And he writes to them, and the first thing that he does is he gives thanks for them. Again, this is typical of Paul. He does this. Even the Corinthian church that had all those issues and problems, the first thing Paul did when he wrote 1 Corinthians in chapter 1, he says, I thank God for you. I thank God for you. And uh, so that's kind of uh, typical uh, for him. And uh, he's uh, sincere in this. And then he moves on from there to tell them that he prays for them. Um, verse 8 through 14. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. A lot in there, isn't there? Yeah, Paul always packed. You know, paper was probably in short supply, I'm thinking too, right? Um, so, but take note of what he prayed for them. So the first thing he does is give thanks for them, and then the second thing he does is he, he says, you know, we pray for you. Um, there's probably not very many things that would be a, a greater uh, expression of genuine care for someone that you've never met than to pray for them. I mean, what else are you going to do for them, right? Especially if you're in prison, right? But, but to pray, to really genuinely take the concerns of others before the throne of grace and plead with God on their behalf. That's substantial, I would say. Take note there of what he says he prays for them. He says that they might have knowledge, wisdom, understanding. Uh, so that, he says, so that they would then walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Uh, that's verse 10. So that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Uh, it's never knowledge for knowledge's sake, never uh, wisdom or understanding just for the sake of feeling uh, that you're more informed or more intelligent, but there's a reason for it, so that then they would walk or live uh, in a manner worthy of, of the Lord. 
So what kind of knowledge is Paul talking about? He mentions the knowledge of his will, knowledge of God's uh, will, verse 9. And then in verse 10, he refers to a knowledge of God. But Paul has some specific things in mind here that he's going to talk with them about that he needs for them to know. And as we go on, we see the progression in Paul's thought here. They, they, this becomes obvious. Then he mentions strength. He mentions endurance, he mentions patience, he mentions joy, he mentions gratitude. Wow, these are great things to pray for people, aren't they? I mean, think about it. If, if you're praying for somebody and you pray those things, like, those are huge things. Gratitude is a really huge thing. Uh, there's an old saying, um, that New Testament doctrine is grace. New Testament living is gratitude. And Paul specifically mentions here gratitude for the inheritance that we have in Christ in verses 12 through 14. So we're going to be seeing more about that. Gratitude for the inheritance that we have in Christ. And that brings us to our actual assigned passage our assigned passage is verse 15 and following. And uh, I just wanted to make sure that we backed up enough to get some, some context there, which I think is important always when we're studying the Word of God together. But let's read verses 15 to 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Writing to them about Jesus. Now, uses Paul uses the word "firstborn" here, and that throws a few people off. And uh, because we understand from the Bible that Christ is eternal, although he was born as a man in the person of Jesus Christ, that he pre-existed for eternity past as the eternal Son of God. And if that's the case, then why does Paul use the term firstborn here? It's actually a relatively simple explanation. The term firstborn in biblical times was used in two different ways. It was used uh, literally as somebody who was born first in their family, but it was also used metaphorically to refer to a position of privilege and authority, specifically as it relates to the idea of inheritance, which is important in the context of what we're talking about. So, uh, for example, uh, in Psalm chapter 2, the psalmist writes, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. That's a messianic psalm. That means it's a psalm about Jesus. It's a psalm about Jesus being the, uh, the, the king of kings and the rightful heir by uh, virtue of his place and position and authority of all the nations of the earth. And uh, 
If you look back in those last couple of verses before that we read, uh, let's see, verses 12 through 14. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the king, the beloved king, the rightful king, the rightful authority, the firstborn, and he uh, has um, all that is ours in whom we have, verse 14, redemption, the forgiveness of sins, part of our great inheritance. It says here that he might have be preeminent. I looked up the word preeminent because it's one of those words we don't tend to use a lot. I looked it up in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. It says there, having paramount rank, dignity, or importance, outstanding, supreme. And then the dictionary goes on to say that preeminent and prominent and eminence, all three words are rooted in the Latin stem word, menere, which means to stand out. So when we sang earlier that there's none like him, that there is no one like him, that's the idea here. There is no one like him. Nothing compares with him. The word menir, the Latin word root menir, is related to uh, mons, which is the word for mountain. Uh, and that's where the word paramount comes from. And all these words are uh, English words coming from Latin words, coming from Greek words, which are meant to say there's no one or nothing quite like Jesus. He is absolutely beyond everything and everyone else. There's no one like him. There's nothing that compares with him. He is all, Adam, uh, uh, absolutely supreme. What did Jesus say when he met with his disciples? I said, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. There is none like him. So that's Paul's uh, point here. He's not saying that Jesus had a, a, a beginning or that Jesus was made because in the passage, that's the, the whole uh, point there that he's making is that um, he's greater than everything that was made because he made everything. The text says there that he made it all and it was all made by him and it was all made uh, through him, and it was all made for him, that he is the creator of the universe and the resurrected Lord of glory. He's greater than the angels. He made the angels. He's greater than your sin. He's greater than your trouble. He's greater than your fears. He's greater than anybody else's opinion because that's just who Jesus is. And Paul is trying here and using the most emphatic words that he can to make sure that the, the first thing that we understand uh, when it comes to what kind of understanding he wants us to have or the uh, Colossians to have is a sufficient knowledge of who Jesus is. That's really important. He goes on to say in Colossians 1, 21 to 23, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... He now has reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him 
If indeed you continue in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now his concern is starting to show. Did you see it? Paul has never been to Colossae. He has never met any of these people, but he's heard stuff. And what he's heard from Ephesus, possibly, or others, is causing him concern. And his concern, as he notes it here, is his first indication that there's a, there's a bit of a problem. And his concern is that they might shift from the hope of the gospel, verse 23, that they had heard which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which Paul himself was a minister or a servant. So his concern is starting to show here. He has a concern. It's not for himself. It's for them. Let's just read on verses 24 to 29. Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for, for ages and generations, but now revealed in his saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Last week, as Doug was sharing, he shared from the, um, the curriculum resource what they had identified as the main point of Philippians chapter, uh, the lesson from Philippians chapter 1, and he read it, and I'm going to read it for you now. It says, Because salvation for our sins came through the redemptive sufferings, uh, suffering of Jesus, Paul understood that God's mission would go forward through the redemptive sufferings of God's people. Paul was not saying that the death and the sufferings of Jesus for the sins of the world was inadequate to, to completely atone for the sins of the world, but he's talking about what? He's talking about the mission. He's talking about getting the word out, getting the, getting the message out, getting the, the, uh, the information out there. To the ends of the earth, because that was God's calling on his life make Christ known. Gave his life for it. It's the reason why he was in prison. That mission. The mission that Jesus gave to Paul and, and to his church to make him known. There's an old saying uh, and what you don't know can't hurt you. It's got to be one of the dumbest things that anybody ever said. Most of those old sayings are pretty good, but that, that one there is just really, really a stupid thing to say. I, I hope we don't say that. Kind of goes along with that ignorance is bliss kind of statement, right? 
Paul had never been to Colossae. He had never met these people. But about five years prior to this, he had spent two years in Ephesus. Tom, would you bring the map up there for us? Um, do, you, do you see Ephesus down there? Dawn's got the cursor. She's going to, if she can, she's going to point out Ephesus. Right there you go. Yes. I knew you could. I knew you could. So do it again. Ephesus is right there. Paul spent two years there. But five years prior to writing this letter, he spent about two years in Ephesus. And uh, you see where Colossae is? Over to the right. About three places over to the right. That way. Ephesus. Yeah, there, Laodicea and Colossae, okay? All right? Southern Asia, okay? Let it burn into your, into your minds, okay? Now, let me read for you um, what Acts 19 says about Paul's time in Ephesus. It says there in Acts 19, uh, well, we'll put it on the screen. When he entered the synagogue for three months, he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. It is thought that as a result of the ministry time that Paul had in Ephesus, that this is where Ephaphras would have probably himself heard the gospel. And Ephaphras was, became part of the mission to reach out to the ends of the earth. Uh, because that's how it works, right? One person can only do so much, Right? But one person talks to another person, helps another person, encourages another pe- person, shares Christ with another person, loves another person, prays for another person, encourages and teaches that person, and they in turn help somebody else. That's the way the mission works. That's the way the world is supposed to work. It doesn't always work that way. But that's the way the mission works. That's the way the church is supposed to work. And that's the way it worked for Paul and Epaphras and, uh, and the folks at Colossae. Look, uh, listen, listen to this. Paul, this is Paul's words to Phile- from, from the book, uh, letter of Philemon. He says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Jesus Christ, sends greetings to you. Now let's look at the last five verses of, uh, the first five verses of Colossians chapter 2. And we'll try to wrap this up here. Um, Colossians chapter 2 verses 1 through 5. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. We read this verse uh, a little bit earlier there. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea. You saw Laodicea on the map there, right? And for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love, to reach all, uh, all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. 
Paul is genuinely concerned for these folks. And you notice um, there the words riches and treasures. Paul uses those words a lot, the word inheritance uh, related to that. And, and what he is driving at here as he writes to these, these uh, folks in Colossae is that, uh, that they might understand who Jesus is and appreciate what we have in him. Because there were those who were suggesting otherwise. It's difficult to get a precise picture for what was actually happening in Colossae. I, some of you would have read, you know, some of you are Bible. Uh, I hope you're all Bible readers. But some of you are, are real Bible students, and you might be familiar with the, the, the Gnostic heresies of the early church, in the, particularly the 2nd, 3rd, 4th centuries A.D. Um, but the seeds of, of those those teachings and influences are, have been identified here in the book of Colossians. And I... I, um, I don't want to turn this into a history lesson or anything like that, but, but if you read through, even through chapter 2, you'll see some of the elements there of those, uh, those teachings, those destructive teachings. And uh, gnosis, the word, Greek word gnosis means to know, and uh, the, the, what we refer to as the, the, the uh, her- heresy of Gnosticism, it was a, a movement in, in history that greatly influenced uh, the church negatively in those early centuries and in, and not to try to define it or describe it in any kind of detail here this morning because I'm not an historian either but there were several elements um, there are a couple of main things that characterize this these teachings that, that we see uh, little glimpses of in chapter 2 as you read on. We won't take the time to read on because we don't have the time to do that, but you can, you can do that. There was, the, first of all, this idea that the, the material world and the spiritual world, uh, there was like a dualism, and the physical didn't really matter. Only the, what really mattered is the spiritual realm. That's what really matters, and the physical world doesn't really matter. So the, what you do in your body just, just doesn't really matter. So that was part of it. But related to that, there was this teaching of, of, a, of that there was a form of higher uh, truth or spiritual knowledge uh, and that it was available to some people, specifically, namely, only the initiated ones who had some type of uh, a particular mystical experience that was similar to an out-of-body experience that put them on a higher plane of understanding. So in other words, you weren't really spiritual unless you'd had this particular type of experience. And as we read through the book of Colossians and appreciate that that was going on in the background, then we start to appreciate more what Paul was saying to uh, the, the, the Christians there about how all of the spiritual, all of the knowledge and wisdom and insight that was available to each and every one of them in Christ. That that's all in, that's all in him. It's part of our inheritance uh, in him. And it's available to, to all those who uh, have a personal relationship with Christ. If you look down in verse 8 of chapter 2, it says, don't let anyone take you captive. 
Think about that for a minute. Paul's in prison. And he says to them, don't let anybody take you captive. See, he's, he's way more concerned about them than he is about himself. Because there are way greater dangers than the things we see that are kind of right and obvious right in front of us. There tend to be the things that we don't see and that aren't on our radar. And this happens when we fail to see who Christ for, see Christ for who he truly is and what we have in him. The danger is real. Um, we won't turn there. But uh, in Acts 20, Paul had told the Ephesian elders, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And in 2 Timothy, a letter, one of the pastoral letters that Paul wrote late in his life, he said to Timothy, you know that all Asia has, has uh, deserted me. So the dangers uh, are real. Sometimes we think that the danger is, is that someone would take away someone would take away from the teachings of, of Christ. And that certainly is a danger, but there's also a great danger when we try to add stuff. And that seems to be the case with this thing we call the Gnostic heresy, that they were adding, adding stuff. You know, it wasn't enough just to have Jesus it wasn't enough to have a relationship with Christ. It wasn't enough to have a simple, sincere faith in Christ. There were other things that, that you need. And I'm not really good at math, but I notice sometimes that when we add stuff, the effect is we end up taking away stuff. Because when you try to add to the sufficiency of Christ and the gospel of Jesus... We, you end up diminishing Christ and what he, who he is and what he's done. Is Jesus enough? Is Jesus alone enough? That's the question. Or do we need to add in a little philosophy? Add in a little psychology. Add in a little astrology. Some of these things may be okay and some of them aren't okay. But we're always in danger of trying to add stuff. And, and when we do, we actually take away from the greatness and the majesty and the sufficiency of the gospel of Jesus. Let's stand together.
So here we are, 1st of July, 2018, going out into a gorgeous day. A little warmer than some of us like it, but hey, I hope you're not going to complain. And as you go, there will be stuff that will get your attention. You will see things, you'll hear things. And you'll be careful to steer clear of some of those things that could really end badly for you. But the things that are obvious to us are not the great danger. The great danger is the subtle things, the hidden things, the things that surprise us. It might not be obvious to you. But the great danger is that you allow your heart to shift away from the singular devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is, and all that is ours in him. The treasures, the riches, the inheritance that is all you and I will ever need if we are truly and sincerely trusting him and walking in him and the power of his spirit every day of our lives. Pray with me, will you? Father in heaven, thank you for this group of people here this morning, Lord, for uh, what you have done in their lives and what you want to do in all of our lives as we go forward from this place. Help us, Lord, to, uh, to see uh, not just the obvious things, but the subtle, subtler things, Lord. There, there are all kinds of messages and messengers who would seek to take away from the, the greatness and the glory of the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's, it's always there tempting us, tempting us to, to add something else, tempting us uh, to, to look somewhere else, questioning whether or not Christ is sufficient. Lord, I thank you for all the references in this whole passage of Scripture to the, to the resurrection of Jesus. Thank you to all, for all the references here to the cross of Jesus and the blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. There's those things that are sufficient, they are adequate, they are more than adequate, Lord, you are more than sufficient you are all we need Lord, help us not to to uh, take away from your uh, greatness and prominence and preeminence in our lives by trying to add other things Lord, help us to have a single minded devotion to you and an understanding of who you are and what you have for us and what is ours in you, in the inheritance that is ours, in your kingdom, Lord. Keep us focused, Lord, on those things so that we don't uh, allow our hearts to shift away. Thank you for your death on the cross and the blood that was shed. Thank you that you are a living Lord and that you are more than capable of uh, seeing us through it all and seeing us home to glory someday. 
in your time, Lord. Our lives are in your hands. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.